0: Can we have a bit of quiet please? We're about to begin. (laughs) Hello, I'm very happy to be here. My name is Jane Sullivan. I'm a writer and a journalist who specializes in writing about books and writing. So this is absolutely up my street this morning. And I'm thrilled to be here with three wonderful crime fiction writers two who are veterans of the genre, much loved, and one who is a, a dazzling newcomer. So I'm going to begin with um, a few things like acknowledgement of country and a bit of housekeeping and then I'll introduce each writer and we'll get straight into it. So to begin, to start the official proceedings, we respectfully acknowledge the Jaja people, traditional custodians of the land on which we celebrate the love of the book. Creative Clunes pays respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We acknowledge the traditional owners of lands and waters across the Kulin Nation and Australia, and we recognize that indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded. We acknowledge their living culture and their unique role in the life of this region. And now a bit of housekeeping. This is a COVID-safe event, so we ask, please maintain at least 1.5 meters physical distance between those and other groups. To minimize movement, please stay in your seats where practical. Observe cough etiquette and personal hygiene measures. (laughs) That's what it says here. (laughs) Under current Victorian government restrictions, face covering is optional. Once the talk is over, please exit the building promptly so the venue can be cleaned. And I'll talk a bit later about where the book signing is going to be. Okay, let me introduce our wonderful writers. On my immediate left is Gary Disher. And Gary... Gary has published, would you believe, over 50 highly praised and widely translated books. And he's not only written crime thrillers, he's also written literary novels, short story collections, children's novels, and novels for young adults, and writer's handbooks, which I personally have found very helpful. He's an experienced mentor, and he's a creative writing teacher, and he's toured internationally, and he's won awards and best books of the year. And um, would you believe there are Oh gosh, five five latest novels listed here, which is a bit unusual. There's a literary novel called *Her*. There's a ninth Wyatt thriller, *Kill Shot*, and there's *Peace*, which follows the prize-winning crime novel *Bitterwash Road*. And now there's a third in the series of *Bitterwash Road* and *Peace*. This is *Consolation*, and it's again it's about Constable Hirsch um, dealing with all sorts of things in his on his local beat. And wouldn't you be surprised, but some murders turned out to be on the beat. Now we move on to Karina Kilmore. You may not have heard of her yet, but you will. Karina's <laughs> been writing for more than 30 years, but what she's been writing is journalism. And under the byline byline Karina Barrymore. She covered almost every major business scandal and financial event since the 1987 global share market crash. And she's written for both Australian and international publications. This is her first novel, Where the Truth Lies, cracking debut. It was shortlisted for the unpublished manuscript award at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards in 2017 and the 2020 Ned Kelly Awards. And she's working on a second book And then on my far left, we have Robert Gott. (laughs) Robert's another well-loved veteran of crime. He's the author of the William Power series of crime caper novels, which is set in 1940s Australia, um, including Good Murder and the Serpent Sting, and of the murders series, including The Holiday Murders, the Orchard Murders and now the latest is The Autumn Murders. So um, Robert is not just a crime writer, he's also published many books for children and um, I think I first came across him as the creator of a newspaper cartoon called The Adventures of Naked Man. Very risque. <laughs> I'm
1: so
0: sorry. <laughs> so now you've met our, our three uh, crime writers so let's kick off with a very general question. Um, Australian crime fiction's really become very popular in the last few years, as I'm sure you know. It's become, uh, here and internationally, we don't just talk about Scandi-noir now, we talk about Oz noir or Oz crime or whatever we like to call it. And um, I wanted to find out um, why do you think that's happened? Why is it just in the last few years that Oz crime has really taken off?
1: Has it?
0: <laughs> 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 has it? You think? Uh, well, not?
1: it has hmm. and it hasn't. I think. Okay. It's still. We've still got a long way to go to be recognised uh, internationally. I only say that because um, last year the Australia Council sent four of four crime writers, myself, Jock Sarong, Emma Viskitch, and Solari Gentle, to do a tour of America and wherever we went, people did not really know about Australian hmm. crime. Oh, Bizarrely, the, really the only Australian crime writer they were familiar with was, was Arthur Upfield.
0: Oh, that's, that's a bit out of date. That is so it? bizarre, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's but, really that's, extraordinary because we're yeah. being told that Australian crime is this big thing and writers like Jane Harper and so on are taking over the universe. So. That's been a bit exaggerated, you
1: think? I, I, I think yeah. it has, and it, it, I think it can make us all a bit complacent to believe that, and I don't think it's true.
0: Okay. What do you think, Gary, you observed?
2: I tend to agree with Robert. that yeah. There are a couple of figures in recent years, like uh, Chris Hammer and Jane Harper, who've made a huge splash overseas, but it's not uh, not a groundswell that encompasses all of us mm. by any means. Mm. I think Australian crime fiction is like crime fiction anywhere. It just so happens that, at the moment, one branch of it uh, called Rural Noir or outback Noir tends to be popular here and overseas, but it'll have its day, I think.
0: Yeah. And Karina, I know you're a newcomer to the genre, but what's your impression? I'm a newcomer as a writer,
3: but I've been Hmm. reading crime all my life, so Hmm. it's not new to me either, you know. I don't know that it's... um,
0: Sort of a breaking out of anything at the moment it's always been a big part of my life so we're just seeing a, something that's continuing rather than something that's a big break-up. Well that nonetheless i think we can say that rural noir is a thing isn't it that australian rural noir seems to be quite could, a could i just add
2: to, to, to that yeah. though um, i think in general crime fiction is becoming uh, more respectable that there are crime panels and they're very popular at all the writers' mm. festivals, but early in my writing career, um, they wouldn't dare put on a crime panel because it would somehow cheapen the proper writers. Um, <laughs> but that, that, that's passed by. And crime fiction uh, on television uh, series, crime series and so on, are becoming much more popular mm. too. So there's a general appreciation of crime fiction and, in the community, I would say that.
1: Yeah. Still, I like to think that wherever we go, Gary, we lower the tone.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's talk a bit about um, the rural, rural noir. I mean, this doesn't apply to all of you, but there is a, there is a, a definite flavour of rural now, which leads me onto a question about setting. And I reckon setting, I'm sure those of you who read a lot of crime novels would agree, setting is really, really important. You want to feel you're in that place and belong to that place to to appreciate what's going on. Um, And I might start with you, Gary, because I've just discovered that you you actually wrote a PhD about this subject.
2: Uh, I used to teach creative writing and I found that a lot of my students um, paid no attention to the setting. They thought that all that matters is is the plot and the characters. But I think setting is one of the most vital elements of of fiction of any kind, let alone crime fiction. Um, characters respond to the setting, um, and particularly in crime fiction, characters uh, uh, investigators are journeying characters, so they have to traverse the landscape, whatever it might be. It might be city streets, or it might be outback roads, but. Uh, wherever they go, they're interacting with the landscape and in many ways trying to read the landscape as a way of understanding why a crime might have happened, why, what brought the culprit and the victim together at that, at that place, for example. Uh, so characters respond to setting, uh, as the setting can de- determine the plot in many ways, as uh, a character driving along a country road after a bad guy strikes a bushfire, suddenly the setting there uh, is affecting the plot. Uh, so to me, it's a vital element. And uh, uh, I, I can't write anything until I can touch and taste and smell it.
0: Mm. And you're in Consolation, you're writing about a landscape that you know intimately because you grew up in it.
2: Yeah, it's wheat and wool country, halfway between Adelaide and the Flinders Ranges. It's, it's where I grew up. and even though I left there to go to Adelaide University and hadn't been back really, um, it still exerts a pull on my imagination.
0: And Karina, what about the setting for your novel? Because it's it's in Melbourne and we're down at the wharves, at the docks, and we're also in a newspaper office. And I have to say, as someone who spent most of my um, working life in a newspaper office, Karina really nails it. She really knows what it's like to work in a place like that. The good things and the bad things. (laughs) Thanks, Jane. Setting was
3: really important for me in this first novel. I come from a a big family of wharfies and truck drivers, and I wanted to um, set it on the wharves, um, to have that clash between workers and the corporate world. Um, As a finance journalist, I've been involved in the corporate world a lot so i needed to I needed to ground myself in that setting, a setting that i just don 't know from work but also personally and I grew up around it, and also the walls and the and the city always no matter what country you 're in, they always have a really strong connection to each other, so I thought it was sort of the best of both
0: worlds yeah. and Robert now you, you you're novel is also, The Autumn Murders is also set in Melbourne and country Victoria but we're going back quite a few years. Yeah I
1: set my novels in the 1940s and I chose the 19, well I won't go into why I chose the 1940s but I, (laughs) I chose the 1940s partly because it's sufficiently distant to seem nostalgic and slightly exotic but sufficiently close. To be familiar. Mm. So my setting is trying to, I try to establish a sense of time as well as a sense of place. Mm. And you can do that when you're writing historical fiction by choosing very small uh, details. Yeah.
0: yeah, You
1: can get bogged down when you're writing historical fiction in making sure that you've got all of the details right and that's just kind of boring. Mm. The best way to do it is to choose little Details to nail a period down. Like, for example, in World War II, Australian soldiers, their trousers were thick and woolen and they had buttons for flies. When the American soldiers came, they all had zippers for flies and they made their trousers very elegant, and Australian women loved them. I don't know whether this. I don't know whether this was a question of ease of access. I don't know. But it was about tailoring, really. And it's those little details that really nail a sense of place.
0: Well, I'm going to go a little off track here because there's one particular detail that fascinated me, and I wondered if it was true in this Mm -hmm. book. There's this weird religion called Odinism, which I've never heard of. Was it real?
1: It's real. Yeah, wow. In fact, it's still, it's still, going. Also something people don't realize that in Australia in the 1940s, there were proper uh, national socialist sympathizers, like full-blown Nazis, not neo-Nazis, Nazis. Nazis. They weren't a very large part of the political landscape, but they were definitely there. And among them, there was an even smaller group called esoteric Nazis. And these were people who believed in the pagan religion of Odinism. And there are still Nazis in Germany at the moment who are trying to re-establish Odinism as a, as a dominant religion. And yet they're properly weird.
0: As it gets around that rather awkward thing that Christ was a Jew, which is difficult for a Nazi, isn't it? It's very difficult. For
1: <laughs> <laughs> there is a branch of the Nazis that actually tried to accommodate that by suggesting that he wasn't. Oh. a Jew, that he was a German, that he was Aryan, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Voltaire said, if you can, but what did he say, um, if you can make people believe an absurdity, you can make them commit an atrocity, which is really the history of religion.
0: Yeah, well that, that has some um, reverberations today, doesn't yeah. it, I think, yeah. Now let me take you back, all oh, back a little bit. Um, how did you get into writing crime fiction in the first place? Um, Gary, can I ask you?
2: I think we can blame Enid Blyton.
1: <laughs> you can blame her for a lot, yeah. Did you know that she was a nudist? <laughs> she was a nudist. I didn't know that. She was. She used to play her. tennis wow. in the
2: nude. <laughs> um, I, I love the famous vibe. He's going to steal our thunder all the way through. Um, I love the famous five and secret seven stories, which are just simple stories about kids outwitting bad guys. But there was the the battle there, the old battle of uh, good against evil, um, and that gets played out in crime fiction. And, but so I've always read it, and uh, sometimes would read bad crime fic novels, and really wanted to write my own. So. That's how I got started.
0: Well, let me tell you an infinitely better writer than Nina as someone who's been revisiting her prose for a book yeah. I wrote. I can attest to that.
2: I gave um, <laughs> some of her books to my to my daughter, who's now twenty six, and I read them to her when she was little, and I realised how awful they are.
0: Karina, <laughs> were you similarly inspired by childhood reading? Um,
3: Niall Marsh was my um, crime writing hero in New Zealand. Um, But also, being a finance journalist for all these decades, I feel as if I've been crime writing all my life. (laughs) Um, One of the um, most recent um, stories I had to cover was the Banking Royal Commission, and it was absolutely heartbreaking to turn up every day and listen to the real-life stories of how uh, finance decisions affect families, how intergenerational wealth was destroyed. How how people committed suicide. Um, that's a huge crime. Mm-hmm. But fiction, fiction crime writing. Um, the way I um, came to it was entering a competition. So um, for any budding right. writers, that's um, a, a good way to start. You know, enter a competition, and you someone's bound to read the manuscript <laughs> that you've had hidden all this time and you'll get some feedback. So that's how I came into fiction crime writing.
0: Mm, And if you get shortlisted, you get approached by publishers and agents too, don't you? Yes, I do. That's an advantage, yeah. Um, And, okay, Robert, how did... I mean, how did you come from the naked man to crime writing?
1: It's a short trip. (laughs) Um, Well, like Gary, as a child, uh, I grew up in Queensland, again, I'm sorry, Um, in a small town, Miraburra. And uh, I loved The Secret Seven and The The Famous Five, Mm -hmm. because I don't know about you, Gary, but I did not, when I was a kid, the last thing I wanted to do was read a book that had me in it. I never Mm -hmm. think of books as mirrors. And The Famous Five and The Secret Seven were just a completely different and exciting world to me. And then there was Dorothy Sayers, Niall Marsh. I love Niall Marsh. Um, And... um, I decided to write crime because it was a genre that was beginning to sell. And although I love literary fiction and particularly the 19th century, I thought I'd try my hand at crime. Mm
0: -hmm. And it just went on from there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's the the, the, the story about writers that they are either plotters or pantsers that Plotters are, are the ones who sit down and work it all out in advance before they even write a word, and pantsers are people who just sit down at the computer every day and write whatever happens and see where it takes you, and um, some writers, of course, are a combination of both. So I, I'm interested in, in, the, in the case of crime because there you, have, you usually have to work out quite an elaborate plot, don't you? So, um, Gary, I think you're a plotter, aren't you?
2: Yeah, I, I spend several weeks, sometimes two or three months, planning a novel before I start writing it. Um, but I, I should say to anyone here who's a budding writer, there's no right or wrong. If you're a planner, be a planner. If you, if it's more organic and just a voyage of discovery, if that's the way you like to work, that's fine too. Uh, but I need needed to plan. I must say that my first crime novel, I pro- approached it as I wrote, approached my literary fiction as a voyage of discovery and um, I realised it wasn't going to work, I needed to to plan. Uh, That said though, I always trust my instincts. If my instincts take me away from the plan, I listen to that little voice that's tapping me on the shoulder rather than try and stick to the plan. Um, And that often happens where my instincts will take me off the plan.
0: And what about when you write a literary novel? Do you approach that in a different way?
2: Not quite so much fine detailed planning, mm. no. Um, the planning's in several stages. I work out the broad arc, the beginning, middle, and end, if you like, and then work out the stage, stages of each stage, which will then later become chapters, then work out what happens in each chapter, who's involved, where it takes place, and crucially, what time of day or what day of week it is, because my first Peninsula novel... Um, was edited by a freelance editor in New South Wales with a wonderful name, Carl Harrison Ford, a a (laughs) terrific editor. He said, do you realise that in the first chapter you've introduced 19 characters? Do we need (laughs) them all? Do we need them all now? And he pointed out that logically one of the characters had got a a letter on a Sunday through the post. So now uh, in part of the planning process, and I think it's crucial, is what time of day is it? Uh, what day of the week is it? Where is it happening? I mean, for example, can Inspector Chalice drive from Melbourne back down to the Mornington Peninsula at five o'clock on a Friday uh, long weekend uh, in, in uh, 50 minutes? No. <laughs> so, and that could uh, stuff up the whole clock then. So. Yeah,
0: well, it's, it's Another word for it, it is anal. Karina, are you a plotter or a pantser?
3: I'm listening to Gary and I'm absorbing all these tips because I'm definitely a pantser, um, much to my... uh, I find it hard to write but I find it even harder to plot. I went to the um, extent of buying a book on the internet called Take Off Your Pants (laughs) <laughs> and it's, it's about stop being a pantser and start being a plotter. So, ever since then I've been taking off
0: my pants or trying to. <laughs> but there's a very elaborate uh, um, scam going on in this book, isn't there? It must have taken a lot of working out.
3: It didn't take working out, no, it just came oh. as it came. Oh, yeah.
1: I'm very impressed.
0: Good. Robert, what about you?
1: I'm a complete pantser. I are. don't know how to plot. I just sit down, and like Gary, I write in longhand, delightfully old fashioned. And I just sit down and start writing and see where the story takes me. And they're they're it. so I know it's a weird way to do a whodunit, but I do like that challenge of writing myself into a cul-de-sac and realizing I'm I'm too lazy to go back and change anything, so I'll just sort out a solution.
0: So you're right about the murder, but you won't know who did the murder or why or anything. Wow.
1: (laughs) But like Gary, just to keep everything together, I do need to know that each story will take place within two or three weeks, so the days are very Ah, clear. So that's a kind of structure, Mm -hmm. but I never work out in advance what the story is Mm. about, really. Right.
0: Okay. Um, And I'd like to ask you a bit about research, which we've touched on. Um, Gary, I remember you you told me at some stage when I was interviewing you for The Age, I think it was, about how you would use little um, snippets of newspaper articles to get you started on a story.
2: Yeah, a lot of my uh, original stories come from newspaper clippings. I'm not interested in what really happened, I 'm interested in uh, or in understanding what really happened i'm interested in, in it as a core for a story so i don't write about what really happened i don 't go and research where did the killer come from or anything like that in real life um, but uh, so what's the question that basically...
0: <laughs> oh, how are you doing? This, this is yeah. actually a sneaky way of asking the question that authors hate, which is, where do you get your ideas?
2: <laughs> yeah, often from newspapers and asking the question, what if or uh, incidents that happened to me. For example, I live on a, on a dirt road down on the Mornington Peninsula and I one day went down to my letterbox and someone had burnt it overnight and I learnt from my neighbours that their letterboxes had been burnt too. My initial reaction was, outrage citizen. And then the writer in me started to take over and I tried to imagine who might have done it. And I imagined two young guys, they've perhaps been drinking heavily, they've got that vicious boredom of uh, young guys in rural areas with nothing much to do, and one of them realises he quite likes lighting fires. And it, it, it gave a whole new plot element to the, mm. to the book. Yeah. Uh, in terms of research, I only do it, I, I like to make things up. <laughs> I do research though, when it's essential. Mm. Uh, for example, at a murder scene, who arrives first and what is their job? What, how, does the, how is the body removed? And often it's just the local hearse. Uh, so when it's crucial, I need to, to do that sort of mm-hmm. research, it was also very handy having a brother who was a policeman, <laughs> yeah. a, a, a country cop too, which helped me with the Hirsch novels. Oh,
0: that, yeah, that would be useful. Karina, um, was was it mainly your newspaper experience that helped you in researching where the truth lies?
3: I think um, all the storylines or plot lines in my book have either based on my work or my um, personal life. Uh, the, the story ideas, um, like Gary, come from a newspaper except they might be stories I've been writing but haven't been able to use um, or they form a good base to fictionalise, um, to twist and turn and finally get my revenge on those people. <laughs> and. Um, the um, research for the wharves um, is in my blood, you know, the research for the newsroom is in my blood. So for this novel, my first and only, <laughs> um, it, there wasn't much research for me to do. It was all sort of um, knowledge that I had already.
0: And it's just retrieving it was the thing, yeah, yeah. And Robert, you would need to do quite a bit of um, historical research, as you say, getting the details right about men's flies and things like that. Yeah,
1: yeah that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I love doing research. Love it. I started off writing a comic series set in the 1940s with a, a comic character, who's the, the main character, um, and then my publisher asked for something darker, but I am... I am very lazy. And so I thought, I'll just write a dark series set in the 1940s as well. So I do two series, one that's blackly comic and one that's blackly not comic, but they're both set in the 1940s. But the characters could never interact. They could never meet each other. Um, They might walk down the same streets, but they could never meet each other because they're two completely different worlds a comic world and a serious world are very different things but yeah I, I love doing the research love it
0: now i want to ask you about heroes and that includes heroines of course um we, i think we come such a long way from quarrel and miss marple haven't we because these days especially when you turn on television and watch the show the, the heroes and heroines are very troubled flawed souls aren't they with terrible dark pasts and wrecked marriages, and, oh, everything is, you, you wonder how they can possibly hold down a job at all, if that's what they do. Um, so let me ask you a little bit, a bit about Dark Troubled Souls. Gary, you've, you've got a few. <laughs> uh, I,
2: I, try to, I try to think about the whole life of my characters, um, not only their professional lives, not only their workplace lives, um, And I like to think of various layers of tension. The tension, of course, in solving the crime, but there's the tension in the workplace where uh, an interfering boss or uh, underperforming colleague or whatever it might be, that all adds to our knowledge of the character and our sympathy for the character. Mm.
0: And we all know that experience anyway, don't we?
2: (laughs) And uh, a troubled personal life, uh, a marriage that's on the rocks, for example, it, it's all it's all familiar to us. Um, these characters are not us, but they could be us. So uh, they, so as readers, we feel closer to them. I think, as you were saying with Miss Marple and Poirot and some of those other characters, they were super reasoning machines. They seemed to have no personal or private lives. They didn't have elderly parents that they were worried about. Um, they didn't have a, a sister who was always going out with the wrong kind of guy or um, that that sort of thing. So they had no social context or familial context, these characters. Um, But owing a lot to um, some American crime writers, uh, Sarah Paretsky and so on in the 70s, 80s and 90s, who introduced characters that we could be close to that we can recognise, that we can acknowledge, um, has, has been an enormous influence on crime fiction, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, Karina, your heroine, Chrissy, has a very, very um, traumatic past, doesn't she? I don't want to give away too much, but we, we do gather from really early on that she's a very troubled girl. Yeah.
3: Um, just. Ha- uh... Referring to Gary's reference to Sarah Perezky, she was a great influence on me, and um, I like a um, main character who is troubled because you 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 root for them. You know, you want them to get better, you want them to improve, you want their life to get better. Um, my main character Chrissy has a very troubled past, and and I think going on that journey with her is another layer to the story. You know, you, you can have the detective story and the and the themes that um, surround the the story but also I felt or I hope as readers you feel like the same but um, I went on that journey with her too, you know, within her within her um, shoes. Yeah. So I like a troubled character <laughs> as a reader and a writer.
0: And, Robert, um, you have some troubled characters too.
1: The, my troubled characters are usually my villains. The Ooh. world of the murder series is pretty brutal and ghastly because, you know, that's entertainment. Um, so you have I one, decided you have one
0: of the most ghastly <coughs> villains I've ever come across. I think he rivals Hannibal Lecter, George Starling. What a monster.
1: Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so I thought it would be nice to have a detective who is happily married. And so the head of the homicide department, which only became a discrete unit in Victorian police in 1943, I've created a fictional head of that department and he's happily married and depends on his wife a lot for her insights. And I thought that was an unusual idea. Yeah. I mean, my God, there are are happily married people.
0: It's funny, it's come to the point where if you have a hero who's happily married, it's a bit of a novelty, isn't it? One thing I'd really like to ask you about is um, what makes a really good villain, because I imagine you might have somewhat different ideas about that. Anyone?
1: A really good villain is someone who does unspeakable things full stop, I think.
0: <laughs> you and don't, what, d- they're, they're you don't want all the psychological background or... Well,
1: no, I mean, you can show that a villain is a bad person by having him do bad or her do very bad, bad things. Um, they're much better to write than virtuous people because virtuous characters like virtuous people are fine but they're not dull. (laughs) dull. I'd much rather write a really horrible character.
2: (laughs) I I tend to agree that the the bad guys are much more interesting to write about than the good guys. There's a rule of thumb though that the main bad guy is uh, the equal of the good guy Equal intellect, equal c- level of cunning, whatever it might be. Uh, because in real life, most criminals are really, really stupid. Uh, <laughs> that said, though, with, with the Hirsch novels, he's a country cop. Part of his job is uh, investigating a theft of right-on-mowers or whatever it might be. So he's, he is dealing with idiots, but um, I'm, m- my challenge there for myself is... Um, how to make those idiots interesting. Um, It it might be some sort of social welfare dimension rather than a good guy, bad guy dimension. But um, I I agree that bad guys are really, I I can have fun with them, particularly in my Wyatt novels. uh, Wyatt is a bit of an enigma, really. The most interesting characters are the minor ones, the bad guys.
0: And Wyatt, he's a kind of anti-hero, isn't he? He's a criminal. He's a a bad guy, but he's a a central character.
2: They
1: are such good books. Yeah, they are. are.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I think it reminds me of um, um, Patricia Highsmith's Ripley, who's a very evil
1: character, but he's great to read about. Yeah, she (laughs) had a peculiar relationship with snails, Patricia (laughs) Highsmith. If
3: ever I want to
1: know something weird, I know who to come to. That's true, she used to carry them to dinner with her in her purse.
3: And my favourite baddie or villain is one with a little bit of good in them as well. And and one Mm. that you don't actually know straight off is actually a baddie. I I like to, you know, be, as a reader, I like to be teased along a bit and misdirected perhaps, but I like to have a multi-dimensional villain, you know, just, Mm. just not all bad.
0: Yeah, well, in your novel, that it, there's not a sort of obvious bad guy, is there? There's just a number of different people involved in bad things, I suppose. Well, there's say. a lot of bad people in yeah, the world. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a multiple bad guy thing. Um, series, uh, What when you're writing, and, and of course it's mainly... Um, Gary, and Robert, who will have experience with this, but Karina, maybe you will in time too. When you're writing a series about the same character or characters, what are the advantages of that and what are the disadvantages, do you find?
1: You don't have to make up new characters. <laughs> That's a serious advantage. Yeah. That you come mm. to a book mm. with a core set of already established characters that, that, that um, you're
2: well aware of their quirks. Mm. That's the, what do you think, Gary, is that the? Yeah, I'm currently mm-hmm. writing a standalone novel. My publisher wanted a fourth Hirsch novel, hard on the Heels of Consolation. And I, I said no, uh, but now I wish I'd said yes, because <laughs> I, I can step into his shoes straight away, mm. into his skin, into his head. Um, mm. I'm trying to create a new character and it's, it's hard. But then again, if I've written I wrote the first six Wyatt novels, one a year, um, back uh, many years ago, and uh, I got tired of him, Uh, I needed a change. So I wrote the Peninsula novels, but crucially with them, the characters change over time. A young police constable, Pam Murphy, she's just a young uh, uniformed cop in the first book, by the fourth or fifth book, she's retrained as a detective and she as the series progressed, she became much more interesting to me as a character. So that if I am writing a series, the characters have to stay fresh for me. They have to change in some way over time. Mm.
0: I remember um, Ian Rankin saying the problem with um, his hero, John Rebus, was that he made him a bit too old in the first place. So he, then he had to retire, and then he had to keep coming back all the time to solve cases even though he was retired. <laughs> Um, I also wanted to ask you, Robert, about the dickhead hero, which I think is how someone described William Power. I think it was Shane Maloney who yeah, described Shane William Maloney Power as a dickhead he was
1: hero. Australia's <laughs> first dickhead hero. <laughs> and it's true. Um, I needed a character for this comic series who was self serving, self interested, solipsistic, not very bright incredibly vain and unobservant, and I wanted it to be in his voice. So I thought the ideal occupation for such a profile is of course an actor. (laughs) And so I made him an actor, which also allowed me to move him around Australia because in World War II, uh, performance troops had um, special privileges and they would entertain the troops in, in weird. Places. The only disadvantage of that was when I showed the manuscript to my mother, Um, she wondered if it wasn't a little bit autobiographical. (laughs) (laughs) Mothers can be very disappointing.
0: (laughs) Um, What about? um what about violence? Um, I wondered if any, if any of you had rules about how far you would go in describing a really violent scene, whether there are just some things that you would not show the reader. I mean, the reader's going to use their imagination anyway, obviously, but, but, are, there, but are there some rules that you, you have in place about that? Anyone? Well, my rule is no sex
3: on the page. <laughs> <laughs> That, yes, goes, that, that goes, goes for point violence point as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm too shy to write that, so I figured I'd just steer right away from it. Um, violence as a, as a reader, there's, um, there is some violence in my novel, but it's, it's off the page. Um, it's, it, there's nothing graphic in there. As a reader, I'm not, um, I don't like reading graphic violence or abuse or... Um, Hardcore sex scenes. So, as a writer, that's where I think I'll I'll
1: go. -hmm. Yeah. My books are a bit violent, but they seem more violent than they are. I don't linger, Mm. and it is the reader who's filling in most of the details. But there is some unpleasant stuff, and like Karina, there is. (laughs) Thank you. Um, uh, Like Karina, I just don't sex scenes in my book because I just think you know when my friends read them they're just gonna think seriously (laughs) this this is what you do
2: Uh, I I, I'm like Robert I think that the books might seem violent but most mostly it's off page or it's over very quickly Um, it's responses that I'm mostly interested in, mm. the, the, the the fallout, the after effects, and so on. And often, um, the the violent scenes might be they might be over quickly, but they might not um, lead anywhere either. They might be just like a, a stupid scuffle where no one wins. I've, um, and then there's um, some nasty stuff happens right in the last few pages of consolation, yeah. but it's. It's not a um, heroic good guy and really nasty bad guy. It's, it's, it's a confusing, confused scene. Um, n- no one comes out of it all that well. And no one's quite sure what's happening. And I think a lot of violence in real life is like that too. That's
1: what make, made that scene so powerful, Gary. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think. There, there is a rule, isn't there? I think, anyway, I have found that you can kill any number of people, but you cannot kill an animal.
0: Well, these two have killed animals, I can tell you. <laughs> 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 uh, we've got hor- dead horses in, in uh, Peace, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we have, can I give away what happens in Where the Truth Lies? It, no, all right. Well, I won't, my lips are sealed, but. Watch out! <laughs> a, little it's worth. No, it's
1: a, a, a kitten. <laughs> I'm
3: not answering. And there's a question mark over whether it happens or yeah, not. It's um,
0: an implication. We, we, we don't see it happening. That's the other. I'm very relieved about that. Yeah. Um, one thing that um, we all expect in a crime novel is pace and suspense. And um, I think that's a difficult thing to do, but um, I'm hoping that you will tell me with your experience between you that there there is a secret to this. And uh, confession here, I've been trying to write a crime novel for years, and the face and suspense part of it is really difficult. So please tell us
2: how you do it. Gary? (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, crime writers use some certain tricks. They use withholding tactics and delaying tactics. The reader badly wants to know, but your job as a writer is to withhold and delay as as much as possible. So that always generates suspense. Uh, uh, Uncertain outcomes or partial outcomes, when the the reader wants everything fully explained, only getting part of the story. carefully placed turning points, just when, and and things going wrong at the right, right, wrong just at an awkward moment, when everything's going swimmingly well for the main character, you pull the rug from under their feet. But these are just pretty obvious ways, I think, of of, uh, generating uncertainty in the reader, Mm -hmm. because that's where a lot of the tension and anxiety comes, and and suspense comes from, is reader uncertainty. Uh, but in terms of um, two approaches I take, the Hirsch novels, uh, we don't stray outside his mind. We are with him all the way through so that as he's puzzled, we readers are puzzled. Whereas the, the Wyatt novels and the Peninsula novels, I take the reader into the minds of lots of characters and so often the reader knows what the bad guys are doing or thinking and and the reader perhaps wants to tap the the good guy on the shoulder and say, look out behind you. (laughs) So there's another way of generating tension from multiple viewpoints where Mm. the reader reader knows more than the good guy. There's some ways to do it.
1: I find that, um, for me, a good way to create tension is not to have the reader wondering who did it but instead, have the reader wondering who's next. Mm. And so, in my books, the psychopath is revealed up front. And so he's loose; he's a loose cannon throughout throughout the book. Also, I write longhand, so when my hand gets tired, I know that's enough of that,
2: <laughs> of that scene. And it is. The, do you find that, Gary? <laughs> So I always end chapters on a high point because of my hand is tired. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> your hand Pretty tells much. your
2: brain what to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Did you guys really just write in longhand? Surely there comes a point where you turn to the you know the keyboard.
1: Yeah, it's a layer of editing. It's yeah. a really good layer of editing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you write longhand, Serena?
0: No. I don't write longhand now. She's been working no, in
3: a newspaper no office. Oh, Why true. would she?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
3: But as far as um, plot and pacing goes, um, as a newcomer to writing fiction, I, I've been trained all my life to write the most important thing first in the first sentence, and then you just dribble down to you know the the least <laughs> important thing. Whereas fiction, I've got to chop that up and put it, you know, twist it round and flip it over and put this in the front. It's so so it's a big learning curve for me not to follow my instinct of going the most graphic first thing and then trickling down, so uh, um, definitely
0: that's hard to learn.
3: I,
2: had, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right, Yeah, you'd have to relearn really that. Yeah, mm, yeah it,
0: that happens. Now um, we're getting close to the point where I'm going to um, allow you people out there to ask questions and we we got a couple of roving mics, so um, if you would please stick your hand up and wait for the mic to come to you before you speak. And the usual um, request, please, questions rather than long statements. <laughs> so have we got this, we've got one question here already.
3: Karina, uh, you said earlier this was going to be your only novel. Do you think that that's not the truth? <laughs> Is that a play on my title, Where the Truth Lies? (laughs) Um, No, I probably misspoke. It is my only novel so far, yeah. Uh, I'm working on another one, and um, I've got, you know, I plan to continue as a fiction writer, yeah. Thank you.
1: I just want to know who burnt down your letterbox, Gary.
2: I, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> he, he hasn't read the book and sued me, so...
0: Um. <laughs> well, that is a problem sometimes, isn't it? If you base uh, a character on a real person, you, 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 might, you might get sued. It does happen, even if it, though it's fiction.
3: I've based a few of my characters in my book on real people I've met. Um, the union, uh, the main maritime union person, is a um, is a real union person, not for the maritime union, but for the transport union, um, the the public relations person for the big. Um, corporate that I target is a real public relations person who works in Melbourne. <laughs> and, and a lot of the newsroom personalities are real people that um, I thought so <laughs> come in and out of my career over the 30 years and um, so far no suing. So, so I've got away with it.
0: Any other questions? Yes, yeah. of course you can yes. Uh, Wait for, wait for the microphone. Gary, yeah. I've read The Consolation of those three books,
3: and I think they give such a great sense of um, Australian outback desert, and I'm sure that's what makes them so enjoyable to other people who haven't been there, and that's why they will be um, enjoyed overseas, because it's a, a way of life that's, in a way, nowhere else in the world. That's
2: all. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, as I said, I grew up there, so uh, I always have, still have a very strong sense of, a, of um, the smell of the dust or whatever it might be. But I did... Uh, um, one of the so-called defining aspects of Outback Noir is that it's hot and dry and droughty and bush fiery. So I went against the trend with conservation. I set it in winter. To remind readers that uh, Australia in winter can be lushly green and freezing cold.
0: So. Mm, mm. Gary, you have a reputation of being
3: a pretty nice guy, a snag, in fact, but in your white books, they are so violent. And I remember the second one, I think I counted up 13 dead bodies. <laughs> is, is this your sort of alter ego? <laughs> <coughs> uh-huh. um,
2: well, I think there's a serious intent behind that question. I think to enjoy reading crime fiction and to enjoy writing it, we have to be in touch with a darker side of ourselves. Um, and uh, Karina touched on that, On she said the word revenge. And I think sometimes what we're doing with crime novels is getting revenge. So, um, yeah, I'm tapping into some, I'm tapping into a, a powerless side of myself sometimes. I can barely get through the Melbourne Age newspaper in the mornings without some sense of outrage at <laughs> usually what white-collar criminals or the Liberal Party are getting away with. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I can't do anything about it, but perhaps in a book I can, in a sense. <laughs> um,
3: yeah, my, my question is... Well, it starts with, with Gary, but it's a question for all of you
2: about... Um, choosing to use real places in terms of towns like Gary's turned Hastings on the Mornington Peninsula into Waterloo which is clever in the first place so I'm just wondering what the rest of you do you what you think
3: about
1: sort of creating an entire town that's fictional in order not to be sued I suppose no uh, real ones real towns real towns real streets Real, real towns and real streets especially, they help provide me with a frame, framework for writing.
0: What, can I uh, 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 elaborate on your question, if you don't mind, um, what's the advantage in using a fictional town, as, as you've done? Is it you can write about real people in the town and not get sued,
2: or? Uh, it's not so crucial with um, urban fiction, I think you can set a, like Inspector Rebus in Edinburgh, for example, or, uh, or Hieronymus Bosch in Los Angeles. These are real city streets, real buildings in those streets and all the rest of it. But, um, if, uh, say with the Peninsula novels, if I named the place Hastings, but for the sake of the plot, I needed an international airport there, or, <laughs> or a major teaching hospital or whatever, I realised quite early on in the piece that, um, it can feel like Hastings and look like Hastings, but it, but for the sake of the plot, I might need to meddle with it. And because if I had Hastings there with an international airport next, you know, a kilometre out in the paddocks, um, it would outrage the locals and confuse them and irritate them. And so, airport of <laughs> doesn't Doesn't. <laughs> <play. laughs>
0: and you get endless tedious emails of people saying, "I think you should know that."
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: I was wondering if um, COVID or pandemic or disease, modern diseases uh, has affected um, you know, murder, modern day murders.
1: It's been a disaster for domestic violence. <laughs> it has, it's just been a disaster for domestic violence. But I don't know about
2: murder, murder rates particularly. Well, I it's think a lot of the criminals had to stay at home and so certain sorts of crimes there was a drop in them but if they're staying at home and beating up the wife and kids or whatever then another is surging burglary was down
3: <laughs> just going on from that question do you envisage writing COVID into books in the future or will you, like a lot of writers,
0: just avoid it completely. Ignore. <laughs> uh, it was whether you were going to write COVID into um,
1: No, yeah, I did. Future. No, I can't yeah. imagine. I, the, the last thing any of us wants to read is a whole series of novels about COVID and how people coped with COVID. <laughs> so I think my, many writers are just going to pretend it didn't happen. Oh, that's very
2: metaphysical,
0: <laughs>
2: that one, yeah. Are you going to introduce the, COVID into yours? Oh, the whole, the whole thing is very vexed for me. Um, when I was writing Consolation last year, I kept wanting to write it, <coughs> excuse me, I kept run, wanting to write it into the plot. And I realized I couldn't because the, the story has no full stop to it, it still doesn't. Um, mm. And anything I wrote was going to seem terribly dated. The book I am writing now, I touch on it, but it happens very early in COVID where people are starting to realise that something is happening, but I, that's, where I, that's where the story will end. Um, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do in the future, really don't, because I'm writing contemporary novels and it's such an enormous thing. How can we ignore it? How can we pretend it didn't happen? Um, I, don't, I really don't know what to do about it. Because we write fiction, Gary. (laughs) Do you, just following on for the COVID thing, do you think that the fact that the death tolls have
3: been so high, does that desensitize people to
2: death, murder, rates? You know, we used to think 3,000 dead in the Twin Towers was a, a big number. And now we're talking hundreds of thousands. So how does that impact on how
3: you deal with death, murder, does it desensitise us? Do you need to up the stakes?
2: Are you talking about real life or people reading fiction? I'm
3: th- talking about fiction writing. I mean, is there a sense that because there's so, mi- so much more death on such a scale that somehow a murder might be less
2: important? I, I don't think it will affect fiction, reading fiction, because in, in, in fiction, the deaths, there's something very intimate and close about it. Um, that your main character is close to it or meets people who are close to it. It's still very intimate, it still resonates, it's it's still powerful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we all know from our own lives that 3,000 deaths is impossible to get your head around. But if a member of your own family dies, it's absolutely devastating. It's a completely different... uh, The the human, human psychology works differently, I think. It is about the intimacy of the personal relationship.
3: Um, you talked about your tour of the
0: US, um, which I followed, um, and but could you talk in general about overseas sales of Australian crime?
1: Overseas sales of Australian crime, I don't really know what the figures are, but Oh, just in general um, but potentially we write better crime novels than anyone else no question about that but the, the American market is vast and it's, it's an astonishing number of books get published in America every year like hundreds of thousands of books literally and so that is a you know that's a market that it's very difficult
2: to break into. Um, you, you
0: do well in Germany,
2: don't you? Yeah, it's. Uh, I've made three author tours of Germany now. I was supposed to make a fourth one during COVID. Uh, I've only made one author tour of Australia, and that was just to a few bookshops in Sydney and Brisbane. So um, I'm still bewildered about my success in Germany. Not, I'm not talking about hundreds of thousands of sales or anything like that, but... Uh, I think it's got some, a lot to do with the, with the Germany as a nation, that they're open to books in translation, they're open to other cultures, whereas I think probably the Americans are closed to other cultures, books from other countries. Um, <laughs> it's, my surname is a hum, humble Anglo-Saxon empl, uh, occupation name. Dishes made dishes. Um, so, and when... I, When I made the most recent tour, it was 2016 or 17, um, Jane Harper's The Dry was everywhere, in all the bookshops, huge piles of it. Um, And I understand that Chris Hammers had the same sort of success, but so I think it's just some individual writers who have done very well in some countries.
0: Well sadly I think we're going to have to wrap up because we've almost come to the end of our time, but what I will tell you is that um, the authors are going to be over at the warehouse which is just a little way away in 36 Fraser Street and they will be signing books there and um, I'm just going to do a little plug for my own book, Storytime, which is not a crime novel, but it's a non-fiction book about going back to reading the books I, re- I enjoyed as a child. So my book will be there too, I hope. Um, so I would like you all please to join me in thanking our wonderful crime fiction writer.